This morning's reading is Titus chapter 2, starting at verse 1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. This is God's Word. Thank you, Ollie, and good morning, everyone. Nice to see you, whether you're a regular or uh, if you're visiting us for the first time. It's good to be in London on a sunny Sunday, isn't it? Not a rainy one. Good to be here any day. Let's pray before I say anything else ridiculous about the weather. Father in heaven, we're, we're so thankful that we get to come here, read your word, spend a few precious moments dwelling on it, thinking about it, and applying it to our lives. Father, I'm nervous this morning that as we talk about uh, lifestyles and, and what we must do in Christianity, I, you know I'm nervous I might be misheard and that um, someone might go away thinking this is all about what we do. We rejoice in Jesus Christ this morning and what we believe about him as our saviour. And help us, we pray, to think about uh, what life might look like once we have him as our saviour. And we pray only and always in his name. Amen. Does it matter then how a Christian lives? Does it matter how a Christian lives? I think perhaps if you know John 3.16, one of the really famous verses in the Bible, uh, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The key word there is believes in him. It doesn't matter what I do because it's all about believing in Jesus Christ and having eternal life. Surely it doesn't matter what I do. Amen. I agree. But on the other hand, I just want to say to you this morning, oh, but it does. Oh, it matters. Yes, it matters a lot. It is all about belief. We will only be in heaven because of what we believe. But also, I want to say, because of this and other passages like it, what flows from the truth, what the godliness that comes from it, really, really matters. And I want to just try and show you why in the moments that we have this morning. Titus was a pastor in Crete in the Mediterranean and he was told it really matters how your church people live, Pastor Titus, and you've got to tell them that. Just have a look at verse 1. Let me show you. 
You, however, Titus, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. You see that? Teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And then what follows is 10 verses of uh, lifestyle stuff. And we'll see, he goes through lots and lots of ages and stages of people and tells them how they should live. Teach what's appropriate to sound doctrine. I remember speaking to someone not so long ago, a Christian, and um, they're not at this church, so you can relax. Uh, I tried to gently say, what about this aspect of life, if I may ask, what about this part of your lifestyle? And they totally shut it down. They wrote to me and said, nobody has the right to ask about that area of life. To which I failed to say, I didn't feel it was appropriate, I thought it was up to their pastor or their closest friends, but I, I, I think the answer is, God has the right to talk about your life. And maybe has God given you a pastor and a couple of close Christian friends around you who have the right to ask you that question? It does matter. Now, immediate caveats, okay, just at this early stage of the sermon, because some of you might be shifting uncomfortably in your seat. I'm not saying uh, somebody has the right to command you, you know, in some sort of um, authoritative, dictatorial way, what is appropriate for you. It says, teach, teach them. And I'm not saying someone is going to bully you into some sort of cult-like way of living so that you never had a choice about it and you'll regret it and be bitter for the rest of your life. I'm not saying that. It says, just teach them. On the other hand, can you see the other danger I'm trying to guard against? It does say teach them. It does say do something, Pastor Titus. It does say their lives matter. So have a go. Show them what their lifestyle should be like. You see, so it matters. It matters. Why? This is the key question. Why does that matter? And the answer is the sermon title. That the church must be attractive so that the key things about the Christian faith, namely that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, they don't look rubbish. And they don't look devalued. And they don't look worthless to anybody who cares to look at a Christian lifestyle. This, of course, is a bit, bit of what chapter one was beginning to build on. You, if you were here last week, it really matters the way an elder lives. Because good elders are what you want, because they believe and therefore they act differently. And false teachers are what you don't want, because they're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good, as the end of chapter one puts it. So godliness matters. If you haven't followed me so far, then let me try and give you an illustration. Okay? Many of you know Tom and Sharon Walsh, who are here at the church with us. Um, last year, Tom and Sharon got engaged, and um, Sharon got an engagement ring. Now, this is a terrific story, which I believe God has given to Christchurch Mayfair, so that uh, we might all understand the gospel better. Um, Tom and Sharon get engaged, and um, hurrah, congratulations, brilliant. At which point, Tom's family, his mum and his sisters, say, oh, Tom. Granny, I think it was, has this old diamond it, it, we think it's part of her costume jewellery or something you know, fake, maybe a bit of cut glass. But look, it's, it's loose. It's not even attached to a ring. It's just a loose diamond. It's in mum's jewellery box these days. Congratulations on your engagement. We're just going to send you the diamond. Do what you want with it. Probably not worth anything. They put this loose diamond in an envelope and mailed it in the ordinary post without special delivery without signing for it, without parcel force or anything. They just put a stamp on it and put it in the mail. In order that it didn't get lost rattling around in the envelope, 
uh, in order that, just in case a, an eagle-eyed thief didn't see it and think this might be valuable, they, they sellotaped it, I kid you not, to a pair of socks. <laughs> and in fact, they weren't just a pair of socks, it was a pair of Santa socks, which was just the most ridiculous thing they had that wasn't very valuable. And they sellotaped this little loose piece of diamond, whatever it was, to a pair of socks. They put, a, put it in an envelope, sealed it, put a stamp on it, and put it in the post box. The thieves, sure enough, thought it was just a pair of Santa socks in an envelope, and it got through to Tom and Sharon. Whereupon they opened it, out fell a really random pair of socks, and this massive, beautiful diamond. I mean, the way Sharon describes it is, oh my goodness, this is not a piece of costume jewelry. They had it valued, sure enough, it's a real, beautiful, almost flawless diamond, and now she's had it set on an engagement ring. And it sits there every day on her finger as, I guess, the most precious thing she has, materially speaking. Now, I told you God has given us this story so we might understand the gospel better. Let me just try and explain. The gospel, if you will, is the diamond. It is the precious thing that the truth, in the words of our sermon title, sermon series title, is the truth about Jesus Christ, which, as we'll see next week, is that he is our God and our Savior, he came to earth, he appeared on earth, Titus 2, 11 to 14, in order to, to live a perfect life and die for our sins. And then he's coming back one day to get those of us who believe in him. That's the, that's the, the diamond, the unchanging, precious thing. The ring, the setting that Sharon had constructed, you know, the, the, the sort of stuff that holds the diamond in place, that's the lifestyle. That's the... That's the stuff about my life which says, look, I'm not the gospel, I'm not the diamond, I'm not the precious thing here, but I do want to create an atmosphere for this most precious truth in my life which says, I've got something really, really special here. If we have a lifestyle which treats the most precious news in the world a bit like a pair of Santa socks, a bit like it's nothing, then don't be surprised if everyone in your life who looks on totally misses it and they never notice anything different. If, on the other hand, that is an atmosphere in my life is created where that is the most precious thing to me, where everything I do revolves around this, then I think what's going to happen is people are going to say, that is beautiful, can I have a look? The church must be attractive in that way. You and I, we're not the gospel, I'm not the diamond. Jesus Christ is the diamond, but the setting I create for the gospel is to be attractive. Lifestyle matters, godliness matters. And in everything I do, therefore, I either cheapen or I cherish the gospel, everything. Let me just try and give you one, one example from my own life where I stuffed it up. Uh, for, for many years of my life, I tried to kid myself that I was a rugby player before it really sank in that I was too skinny for it. And um, I used to play rugby for a club in London, and um, I tried my best at rugby, but I really wanted to share the good news of Jesus if I could. I wanted to be there in amongst the, the men to try and share a bit of the gospel. And the best chat I ever had about Jesus, as far as I can remember, was in the bar one day after a match where we'd all get a drink and then they would feed us because we were all hungry after the game. And I remember queuing up for food with two big rugby lads, and we had the best chat for five minutes during the, the food queue. 
And I, was, I tell you, I was sharing Jesus Christ. I was talking about the man Christ Jesus, why I'm a Christian, what he's done for me. This doesn't normally happen, but it was fantastic. Five minutes, and they were interested. I mean, they were asking me questions. It wasn't just a monologue. Five minutes go past. We get to the front of the queue, and there's three plates of food on the counter where they're doling out the bangers and mash. Two of them are burnt and horrible. They're burnt bangers, lumpy mash. One of them actually looks quite good. And without thinking, I got to the counter first. I took the good plate of food, and I walked off. And I remember the, 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 one of the guys saying as I walked away, oh, that's what your Christianity means to you, is it? And I realized, I mean, nothing that I'd said in the previous five minutes was rendered untrue. The, the diamond was still on the ring, as it were. It still existed. The truth is still there. But, gosh, I cheapened it. Those five minutes I cheapened with the thing I did next. There you go. That's the whole sermon. That's it. First, everything from verse 1. Um, the church must be attractive. The gospel diamond, which is always true, must be made beautiful by the way we behave. I'm tempted to say, let's pray. But I also wanted, I just want to take you through six points of application. You heard me right, six points. I'm, I've come from holiday full of enthusiasm. Um, but it's really a one-point sermon with six points of application, so they won't take very long at all. I just want to pull out one summary comment from each one. Um, I, I trust that, for none of us, all six of these apply, but I, I trust that you can prick up your ears when it gets to the relevant one or two for your age and stage. I trust you'll also want to know what you might want to pray for your brothers and sisters as well, so it's good for us to listen to all of it. Okay, um, first point of application then. Firstly, on your sheets you'll see... Older men learn temperance in an age of temporary highs. Just look at verse 2. Verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Temperance there, the first word, really literally means sober. This is the first thing that Paul says when he's talking about Christian lifestyle. Are the older men basically booze hounds who like a, a really good drink or have they got a lid on it? They're able to control that habit in their life. The temperance in an age of temporary highs. Have they, uh, are they so attracted to the bottle that it looks like they haven't learned that there's anything better in life? They haven't got a diamond. I've heard someone say recently that the three most common things that men address midlife crises with all begin with M. When I have a midlife crisis, I might be tempted to turn to a mistress. I might get a motorbike. Or I might run a marathon. <laughs> Just to be clear, it's not wrong to get a motorbike and it's not wrong to run a marathon. For the record, mistresses, definitely wrong. Okay. <laughs> the older Christian man is called to a life that says, I don't, I don't need a kick from a temporary high, like a mistress or a motorbike or a marathon, because I actually have got something that's better. I've got this enduring truth in my life, a gospel diamond, which is so much better than those things, and it's not going away. I'm content with it. I'm happy with it. There's a, there's a steadiness. Do you see all these words that describe the older man? He's just steady. He's sound in faith and love and in endurance. He's temperate. He's steady. As I personally moved towards being an older man, gradually, I, um, 
I'm aspiring now to be a man who can plod for God. I think, I think that's, a, that's a noble virtue. I'm, I'm a steady older man because I've got something that's valuable in my life and I don't want to give it away for anything else. I'm going to plod for God. Year by year, job by job. Older men, learn temperance in an age of temporary highs. Secondly, older women. Paul says, learn training in an age of transactions. Just look at verse three. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women, and so on and so on, and I'll get to that in a moment. So older women, training in an age of transactions. Again, do you notice he mentions wine? Interesting. He mentions gossip? Interesting. But but the thing we particularly learn from the older women is that there's an importance to training other people. We pay money in our age of transactions for, well, everything, don't we? You You pay for your food. You pay for your Oyster card or your contactless card. You pay for your petrol. You pay for your holidays. Um, in basically everything I do in life, you know, I, I present my card, I punch in my pin, the machine beeps, and I've got what I want. And it's tempting to see church in the same way, where it's an it's a interface of transactions. I can understand why that happens, because maybe we give money to church. Maybe we turn up here on a Sunday morning at the same time every week. We receive a, a commodity, a service from the, the pastor and the, and the leaders, and then I go away again. I gave money, I got what I wanted, thank you very much, there's a transaction. I think all of that is true, of course, you can't really do without all that stuff, but do you see here, Paul is urging on us a, a learning of training, which is much more organic and much less capitalist, dare I say, than that, and you need both. The church is not just an institution I transact with, but it's also an organic set of relationships that you can't plot on a spreadsheet. And there's supposed to be, apparently, amongst the women, Paul says, but I guess also amongst the men, men, a web of of mentoring and training that is not centrally organized. My wife says that one of the best things she did Christianly in recent years is to seek out a mentor who was someone she went to and said, look, would you mind, as, you, as an older godly woman who I respect and have a relationship with, would you mind mentoring me just for the foreseeable future? Because I'd like to learn from you. And she said yes. And it's been one of the best things Sarah did. So older women, learn training in an age of transactions. Incidentally, if you're not sure whether you're older or younger... It's not, it's not really clear where the boundary line is. It's not like a tick box census. Yes, I am in fact under such and such an age. Um, I think that's okay. And perhaps, perhaps Paul doesn't specify for a reason. Could it be that if we're somewhere in between, then we do a bit of both? I, if I'm not sure whether I'm older or younger yet, then I will both try and mentor other people and try and be mentored by other people. If you're a woman, perhaps you could mentor a younger woman and seek out an older mentor at the same time. Older women. He then turns to younger women, you see. Younger women learn subjection in an age of rebellion. Just have a look at verse four. Then the older women can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. So learn rather unpopularly, subjection in an age of rebellion. Please hear me right here. He's not saying 
every female should be busy at home making pies and singing lullabies to babies. That is manifestly not the way the world works. Uh, however, I want us to hear what he is saying. We know from 1 Corinthians 7, which is the fullest place where Paul talks about singleness and marriage, that singleness in this age is actually better than marriage. If we can bear it, you can do more for the Lord. So he can't here be saying, aha, but everyone should suddenly be married. Furthermore, we know from the whole Bible that there's a trajectory in the Bible that goes from the Old Testament where basically it was a bit weird if you weren't married and you experienced some social ostracism to the New Testament where, as in 1 Corinthians 7, it's better to be single if you can be for the Lord to the new creation where we're all going to be single and like the angels, just like we were looking at a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 12. So that, you see there's a trajectory from marriage to singleness is better if you can to, well, we're all going to be single. So that's the teaching of the Bible and this, we can't interpret this in a way that makes it different in any way. Rather, I think his point here is therefore in an age of rebellion where everyone's aspiring to promotion in whatever walk of life they're in, if you do find yourself as a stay-at-home mum, that's a worthy calling to honour God in. See, God, God sees the attitude with which you might cook an ordinary weekday meal or with which you might clean your house or with which you might talk to your children. And so to those mums, Paul would say, look, get busy, work hard, don't despise this particular vocation God has called you to for these years because you can please God in it. And sure enough, some people will notice your attitude in all that you do. I think that's why he finishes this section with, so that no one will malign the word of God and presumably think, well, Christianity hasn't got anything to say to a young, harassed mother. It has. She too has a diamond of Jesus Christ. Younger women learn subjection in an age of rebellion. We must move on. Uh, fourthly, younger men learn self-control in an age of self-indulgence. Indulgence, excuse me. Just look at verse six with me. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. I find that brutally short, don't you? Everyone else gets a whole list of stuff. Work on this and this and this and this. Young men, just the one thing for you guys. I don't think you can handle any more. Self-control actually comes up again and again. Verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 12. So it's not that the young men, this is just their loan project, but it is their sole instruction. If, therefore, you are also a younger man, Let's say, look, totally arbitrarily, I'm not saying this is the answer, but let's say you're between the ages of 11 and 50. Young men, talking to you, you have one job. Learn self-control. Encourage the young men to be self-controlled. I like these things that appear on the internet every so often. Have we got these, Ollie? Um, these, these memes. You know, you get a lot of these around. You had one job. And the guy who was painting the road, well, let's just go back. The guy who was painting the road obviously had one job and he kind of bogged it up. Let's have the next one. You had one job, which was to put up a banister. It kind of went wrong. You see the stairs going down here. And then the last one, you had one job. You've got to look at that one carefully. You see the arrows? Okay. Thanks, Ollie. 
Young men, you've got one job. Learn self-control. Because I find that rather brief and I want to know a bit more, I, I, I looked up all the things that self-control refers to in Titus. We've got a little list of them here. Generally, when Paul talks about self-control in Titus or things that, um, that need discipline, he refers to slander, gossip. He refers to slacking, i.e. laziness. He refers to stealing, which is what it sounds like. He refers to sex and the purity of the marriage relationship or lust. And he refers to alcohol. Actually, he refers to alcohol, I'm convinced, more than anything else that requires self-control, which I found very striking. I tried to make it sound, begin with an S, and then I couldn't. And I thought, well, it doesn't matter, it's too serious anyway. So young men, learn self-control in all these areas, but learn it with the bottle, would you? I think perhaps this is the most distinctive thing and most immediate thing that a Christian can do in our city, in our day and age. Everything else is kind of secret, and it will come to light eventually. All of these things, they will eventually out you. Slander, slacking, stealing, sex, and the way you behave in your bedroom. But if you can't control your drinking habits in the bar when everyone is watching, that is the most immediate thing, the, the, the biggest advert for a lack of self-control in London, I think, in the 21st century. A couple of weeks ago, I was serving on a, a youth camp, and we had a 16-year-old boy there who I loved, and, and he's, a, he's a good young lad. Um, he's a teenage boy, and when we were talking about the, the possibility of only having one alcoholic drink at a party... He said rather wistfully, oh, I'd love to be able to do that. I'd love to be able to be that guy. But the way he said it just, just said at the moment implicitly, I, I, I'm not that guy at the moment. Do you know, I long for him. I pray for him. And do you know what I pray? I don't pray he'll somehow find loads of self-discipline to conquer his drinking habits. I pray that the diamond of Jesus Christ might be so beautiful to him that one day he'll be an older man who can plod for God. And he's so convinced about Jesus Christ being his saviour that he doesn't need an extra alcoholic drink to impress anybody. Sorry. Young men, learn self-control in an age of self-indulgence. Fifthly, pastors, learn integrity in an age of investigation. Integrity. Just have a look at verse 7. In everything, set them an example, Titus, by doing what is good. In your integrity, sorry, in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Look, I've been, I've been pretty negative about London and London life so far. Let me tell you a positive, okay? We live in quite, quite an admirable age of investigation where if, a, if someone in public life does something wrong, they'll probably get found out and reported in the newspapers and they might get sacked or forced to resign. I think that's a good thing. People care when a politician lies or fiddles his expenses or he takes on three jobs that he can't possibly manage in good conscience. And look, here's the scary thing for the church. People care when a pastor like Titus gets it wrong as well. I think it's fair to say that no one in Christchurch Mayfair will ever make the newspapers for good reasons, probably. I'd love to be proved wrong. I think it's probably also fair to say that if Matt Fuller, if Phil Alcock, if, dare I say it, if, if I were to do something that totally discredited my integrity 
as a Christian minister, I would end up in the newspaper. Suddenly, the press would care about Christchurch Mayfair. You see, we, I need integrity in an age of investigation as a pastor. Please pray for your pastors. And pray that the most skeptical atheists in London may have nothing bad to say about us, or indeed our whole church. See, that's the way Paul, the way Paul ends up in verse 8. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed, because they've got nothing bad to say about us. Sixthly, and finally, employees, do everything. Learn to do everything in an age of authenticity. Just have a look at verse 9. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. This is another positive about our day and age. We, we live in, in the West in an age of authenticity, where if you can be authentic and true to what you believe in, then people will take you seriously. Unfortunately, it doesn't matter what you believe in, but look, if we're serious about Christianity and we're authentic about it, then people will take us seriously. I've said employees here because we're not slaves in the same way that they were, but I want us to try and see that in everything, in the full, fully orbness of everyday life, in your working life and whatever your vocation may be, it's possible to do everything, every menial little task for the Lord Jesus Christ in order to provide a, a, a setting for the gospel diamond. Paul's not endorsing slavery here. We know that from other things he wrote in the book of Philemon and in the context of uh, the whole Bible and Christian history. So we'll talk about just employees for a moment. I, I remember, I think the most beautiful time I've ever seen this worked out was a guy called Len. And for a very short time, I worked in a newspaper, a, re a really, really short time, I worked in a newspaper, and I got to know this guy called Len, who was an IT technician in the newspaper. And Len was a lovely Christian man whose boss hated him. I mean, Len was put in a windowless broom cupboard, really. It was a glorified broom cupboard where he had to conduct his IT work. And um, mainly because he was a Christian, but also partly because he was a really cheerful guy who everyone liked, his boss restricted the amount with which he could walk around the newspaper offices so that everyone wouldn't constantly be going, oh, hi, Len, how are you? Yeah, brilliant. Because it was manifestly obvious that everyone liked Len and not everyone liked the boss. So Len, as a Christian believer, was squashed into a windowless broom cupboard and restricted in his job. I tell you, I've never met anyone more encouraging in the workplace than Len because he bore it. He actually bore it from his employer. The one time, really, that he would ever talk about the way he was treated by his boss was in, the, was in the newspaper Christian Union, which was a little group that met once a week in one of the spare rooms in the newspaper at lunchtime. And Len would tell us about how he was treated. And obviously, we'd all offer to intervene. Oh, look, look, I've got a bit of influence. I'll have a word. Let me try and do something. And he would always say, no, don't you dare. This is my boss. I want to show him what, what a Christian can behave like. And he said, I've only told you because I want you to pray for me. Pray that I bear up under this. You see, Len was an employee who'd learned to do everything in an age of authenticity for the Lord Jesus. So look, that's the Apostles' six-point uh, application rundown of what it's going to look like to adorn the gospel and make it attractive. How to set that diamond in a, in a ring that's going to really show it off. 
I can't tell you exactly what you need to hear this morning, but I hope you know, and the Spirit is teaching you as I talk. Just notice with me as we close, as we close how every paragraph finishes. You see at the end of, uh, end of verse five, so that no one will malign the word of God. You see at the end of the next paragraph, verse eight, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they've got nothing bad to say about us. You see at the end of verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. You see, in every paragraph he says that the church must be attractive. The gospel must be adorned. The diamond ring, the diamond must have a setting in a ring of someone's life. You, you and I, we're not the diamond. But we do get to live in such a way that says, I own this diamond. I've been given this diamond. 